Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. I'm Srinath Raghavan and this is a podcast presented by Carnegie India. Every two weeks, we bring to you voices from India and around the world as we unpack the role of technology, the economy and foreign policy in shaping India's relationship with the world. In the light of the recent coronavirus outbreak, we are now recording and producing episodes of Interpreting India remotely. In July this year, Indian and Chinese forces clashed along the line of actual control in Ladakh, an incident that left 20 Indian soldiers and unreported numbers of Chinese troops dead. Since then, the two sides have increased their military presence in the area. They have also engaged in a series of talks via military and diplomatic channels to disengage and de-escalate the situation. At the political level too, there have been meetings between the defense ministers and the foreign ministers of the two sides. But on the ground, the standoff persists and the tension is thick. In this episode of Interpreting India, we revisit the face-off at the LAC. Why have negotiations failed to make headway yet? Is an escalation of the Sino-Indian border conflict on the cards? would such an escalation invariably lead to a two front or even a two and a half front conflict joining today's discussion on the recent developments in the LAC crisis is Sushant Singh Sushant was previously the deputy editor of the Indian Express where he was awarded the prestigious Ramnath Goenka award for excellence in journalism his work looks at national security issues strategic affairs and the higher judiciary as well as functioning of democratic institutions a former military officer he has served with the united nations in cote d'ivoire he has also been a visiting lecturer at the yale university's macmillan center sushant is the author of missions overseas daring operations by the indian military and the co-author of the book note by note india story 1947 to 2017 sushant welcome to the podcast great to have you with us thank you shrinath So Shant I want you to give us your sense of the current situation on the line of actual control. Now it's been two and a half months also since the clash and the fatalities happened in Ladakh. Since then we've seen more troop movements in the area. There has been you know further action by both sides. The rules of engagement have apparently changed. There has also been a lot of discussion between the two sides. by the way of flag meetings as well as diplomatic exchanges but the situation along the LAC remains the same in that india does not seem to have managed yet to get a restoration of the status quo ante as it prevailed in april perhaps i was just wondering why do you think the situation remains congealed in this way why hasn't diplomatic activity yet given us any traction in terms of getting the chinese to understand that restoration of status quo is a very important thing from our perspective i think shrina the situation has become so intractable on the on the line of actual control for many for many reasons but primarily the fact that india does have a weak hand in this case you know although a lot of narrative about the events of the late last month and early this month i'm talking about 29th 30th august and the first week of september uh, that where, where india had moved certain troops in chushul sector but those troops were only on, on on its own side of the line of actual control where they had occupied certain strategic heights this compared to what the chinese did in may when they came on to the indian side of the line of actual control and occupied territories whether it be pangongso or depsa 
Pakistan or any of these other 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 areas, uh, the Galwan Valley, uh, the Hot Springs area, or, or the PP17 Alpha Gogra area. On all these areas, the Chinese had come onto the Indian side and occupied Indian territory. Whereas when we moved in, when the Indian forces moved in, uh, in late August and early September, they were on their side. So essentially, the reason why status quo cannot be status quo and cannot be restored is that India doesn't have any leverage on the on the on the on the bargaining table where it can say, hey, "Okay, if you vacate this area, then we vacate, then we vacate this area." The second reason why status quo and is so difficult to restore is that does India really want to restore the status quo and in the sense India would want now permanently or almost semi permanently. Uh, more troops to be deployed on the line of actual control. It's almost a uh, replay of the of the Kargil Dras sector post ninety nine or of Siachen post eighty four. When you know where the terrain is inhospitable, the climate is very harsh, but you still deploy certain troops permanently so that no other mischief takes place, no other misadventure takes place. If India has to deploy more troops there permanently on the line of actual control in Ladakh, that means it is not interested in restoration of the status quo ante, or at least it cannot publicly proclaim, logically and rationally proclaim that it wants to restore the status quo ante because it wants more troops to be more troops to be to be deployed there. These are fundamentally two reasons why India has been unable to uh, make any headway in the in, in the negotiations with the with the PLA and with the and with the Chinese side. And of course the the primary reason remains that we still do not know the motivations and the reasons why the Chinese have have come in and done this, which they did over the last four or five months. You know, the Indian Indian foreign minister is on record saying this, and various Indian Indian officials in off the record briefings have mentioned this, saying that they still do not know the motivations for the Chinese actions. Uh, without knowing the motivations, without knowing the reasons, without knowing the rationale, it is very difficult for the Indian side or for any one of us to understand what can be done or what can be uh, what can India concede. To, uh, to get the Chinese to step back and go back from the areas they have come into. Right. And one of the things that the two foreign ministers, when they had met in Moscow, had agreed as part of their, you know, so-called five-point, uh, you know, the joint communique which they issued at that point of time, was to say that, you know, the two sides have to work towards, after disengagement and de-escalation, work towards perhaps a new set of protocols on how to manage differences along the LAC. But if we don't even have a basic disengagement even before de-escalation, then all of these are presumably moved. I mean, these are basically things which are well into the future. And the first thing we need to do is to make sure that the situation as it prevails either stabilizes into a new normal or results in some kind of de-escalation. So to your last point first, you know, the fact that, that this new status quo, as long as it continues and it has continued for now more than 22, 23 weeks, uh, it really establishes a new status quo. The kind of infrastructure that the PLA is constructing, the kind of, uh, the kind of uh, deployment that they have done clearly establishes, you know, the longer they stay, the more difficult it is for India to reverse that status quo, which is, uh, which is, which is, being, which is being created on the border. But to, the, but to your question of disengagement, the disengagement fundamentally is a problem between the Indian Army and the PLA because of the way the initial disengagement was carried out in Galwan and on the North Pakong Pangongso. You know, if you remember during the during the core commander level talks in May and early June, before the unfortunate incident of 15 June happened, the disengagement was done on a on on a basis of from the from the point of friction or from the point where both the sides were facing each other each other. Both sides would move 
equal distance backwards. But once that principle was established, it could work very well in a, in, in, in Galwan or in the, at the initial time in, in Pangong, where the Indians could come back to their Dhan Singh Tapa post, which is between finger two and finger three. And the Chinese went, went back from, uh, from finger four on the north bank to finger six. Beyond that, that principle does not hold. If the Chinese have to go back to finger eight on Pangongso, India cannot afford to vacate its long-standing Dhansing Tapa post on between finger two and finger three and go back, you know, way beyond even finger one. That is not practically possible. That is not that is that is not doable. And th- having established those principle, uh, that principle in the early negotiations, India is finding it difficult to now enforce an idea that it cannot be based on equal and mutual equidistant going back, but on time, on a certain principle of time as to how much time would both the forces take to come back to that point again. That is the, that is the, first, that is the first reason why it is difficult. And secondly, the friction point from which both the sides go back an equal distance and create a buffer zone, that actually gives Chinese a very big advantage because, you know, the friction points are mostly on the Indian side of the LAC. And then this buffer zone, which is being created, is actually being created more or less on the Indian side of the LAC with very little portion of the buffer zone on the, China, on, on the Chinese side. That is clearly no longer sustainable because of the, because of after the, after the initial disengagement. In any case, even those initial disengagement barring Galwan, both in PP15 and PP17A, have already failed. Uh, the both the sides are already back or at those points or much closer to those points uh, which they uh, which which they were earlier. So this is true that disengagement has completely has completely not worked out. As far as de-escalation is uh, is concerned, and de-escalation refers to the large quantum of forces uh, which have been amassed on the on either side of the LAC by bo- by both the armies, taking them back to a certain area to their camps. The Indian argument is that because of the kind of infrastructure that the Chinese have on their side and the advantage of terrain that the Chinese have on their side, they can come back and redeploy and mobilize those forces in very quick time. Whereas for India, because, you know, because of the kind of terrain that that we have and the kind of infrastructure that we have and the kind and the, and the locations and which uh, these camps are there where these groups would come back to, it would take India far longer to deploy these troops back into these areas in case a crisis re-emerges. The Indian argument, therefore, is that in case of de-escalation, we should go back to a, both the sides should go back to a point where they take equal time to come and, and again get deployed at these points. Now, that is something which the Chinese are not willing to concede for very obvious reasons. In fact, Chinese are not, not willing to make any concessions, any substantive con- concessions, because they clearly have an upper hand, they have an advantage, and they know it, and they are maximizing their advantage uh, in, during the talks. Sure. And just to go back to your earlier point which you were making about disengagement, which is to say that how do you sort of resolve the situation on particular points along the LAC. So my understanding was that even when the disengagement happened at Galwan, this was supposed to be a temporary buffer zone of some kind, wasn't it? I mean, the idea was that for a month or so, nobody would patrol that area. It was not meant to be permanent because precisely as you were saying, in some ways, the Chinese have come in three steps and have pulled back one step, whereas India is now being asked to go much further behind from what its earlier access to the line of actual control was. Yeah, yeah, that's true, Srinath. The, the disengagement process in Galwan was seen as the first step 
which would lead to further further disengagement at other friction points and de-escalation. But as we know, events then took over. You know, what happened on 15th of June in Galwan, where India lost uh, 20 soldiers and Chinese, if you go by reports, five, at least five soldiers that they, they lost there, 10 Indian soldiers were taken captive. And I think since then, things have completely gone downhill. There has been no progress essentially uh, on on any disengagement or de-escalation. So the idea that that buffer zone was temporary was correct, but it was uh, was predicated on an idea or a belief that there would be further steps which would be taken by both sides. And eventually, once de-escalation takes place, then this buffer zone maybe will no longer exist, whatever the time period was, whether it was a month or, uh, or, or two months. But clearly, that has not happened. And, you know, I, I believe it has been reported in some, uh, in, some, uh, in some newspapers. But the fact that even the disengagement at PP17, which was uh, which is in the Kogra region, uh, also, did not, also did not hold out. And the Chinese continue to continue to remain deployed on the dominating heights, and Indians op- Indians opposite them. Same seems to be the situation in the hot spring sector, where the Chinese and Indian forces are again back in those areas. So those buffer zones, barring Galwan, uh, really haven't uh, really haven't held held out now. And after the uh, after the Indian troops Indian action in late August and early September. Uh, on on the southern bank of Pengong, on, on southern bank of Pengongso and in Chushul, uh, very clearly all these agreements, so all all that was carried out earlier, uh, really doesn't hold that good anymore. Now, what was the motivation on the Indian side for uh, you know carrying out this action? Because there are some conflicting kind of uh, you know both narratives and analysis which are out there. So on the one hand, I think there is a consistent attempt to sort of portray this as and sort of as an attempt to take the initiative or seize the initiative in in this situation, break the impasse in some way, put pressure on the Chinese and so on. And we also know that there was a kind of a lot of play given to the fact that perhaps the, you know, a unit of the Special Frontier Force, which is a uh, special unit, you know, you know, with Tibetans, uh, people of Tibetan origin in it, having taken part in that exercise. And there was even a uh, a ruling party's general secretary who went to the funeral of the soldier and tweeted about it and then deleted it and so on. So at one level, there is a clear attempt to suggest that the Indians are willing to, so to speak, up the ante. But on the other hand, at least based on both some of your reporting, but also a few other comments that I've seen being given in background briefings, so to speak, suggest that these moves are also, in a sense, precautionary defensive moves. The Indian army seems to be prepared also for the possibility that if the Chinese decide, for instance, to up the ante and actually undertake some kind of a limited offensive in that area, then Chushul is a certain gap, which is for historical reasons, we have to be in a position uh, to be prepared. So I'm just wondering, is it either or both? How do you read it? So I see it primarily at a military level, it was improvement of defensive posture. Because as you said, uh, tensions were running very high and there had been no progress uh, on the on the talks uh, for almost more than, a, more than a month and a half. And the Indians were worried that they were losing initiative. And they, because they had the resources available to them after having moved these additional troops uh, into the region. So they went for uh, went for improvement of improvement of defensive posture and very carefully stayed on their own side of the line of actual control. So you know some of the some of the peaks which which would have been tactically very advantageous, but but were on the Chinese side of the LAC were not taken. Like heights like the like the Black Top or the Helmut Top, uh, they were they were not they were not taken by the uh, by, by by the Indian side because 
because uh, they lied they as per our our belief lied on the lay on the chinese side of the uh, of of the lac so at a military level it was essentially an improvement of defensive posture while showing certain initiative so so that the chinese are forced to respond come to the negotiating table and 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 then talk about it about the use of special frontier force and the reason uh, it was uh, uh, it was publicized i really do not know i think uh, the initial attempt at least from the army uh, was to play it down but i think for some, for some reasons politically and uh, by certain media uh, houses the thing got uh, blown up and since then of course it has got featured in a big way uh, in international uh, in international press and in international media uh, the general secretary who tweeted and deleted that tweet uh, unfortunately has been dropped in the next in the new round of uh, organizational uh, appointments which have been made by the by the ruling party so i really do not know if that is linked to it but uh, clearly there was uh, there was there's been an attempt Uh, by the indian establishment not to really highlight this or provoke it but i think uh, things went out of their control eventually and uh, the information flew completely and uh, and uh, took a life of its uh, took a life of its own right and the other area which you have been writing about but which has not been that much noticeable in the facial sort of pronouncements is the depsang claims where the chinese have effectively now ingressed and prevented india from not just accessing the line of actual control but the line of patrolling which falls short of the line of actual control even in our own conception uh it is not exactly clear at least from the reports whether the chinese have any kind of even temporary presence there but it looks like they have the ability to move troops quickly every time they see any kind of indian troop movement into that area so that again is a area of some operational and perhaps even strategic significance so could you just explain a little bit about what's happening in depsang so depsang shrinath as you said is an area of immense strategic significance uh, for for india and for the indian army uh, if you look at any of the command war games over the last decade and a half the one area where the indians have been really worried about is the depsang plains essentially depsang plains falls in what is called the subsector north starting from the foothills of the karakoram pass uh, including the area of uh, dbo dolat begoldi which is the uh, air based air strip that was revived in 2009 then coming to the uh, we are going southward then coming to the area of big heights and then to depsang plains this whole area is essentially a flat area a flat terrain where armored mechanized warfare can take place this is highly suited to mechanized warfare and the chinese have multiple axes to reach uh, reach this area they have four or five axes through which they can reach and come come towards their area and they and the area on the chinese side of the lac is equally flat which allows them to mobilize and bring in a uh, heavy amount of armor and mechanized forces uh, into the area as you know this is virtually the northern tip of of india karakoram the uh, karakoram pass is the northern tip of india uh, patrolling point one so to speak so to speak between india and china and for india there is only one lifeline the new dsdbo road uh the the darbuk shok dolat bek on the road which was uh, which was inaugurated last year by the by the, by the defense by the defense minister this is the only lifeline only road that india has to uh, to deploy its uh, deploy deploy its troops there so one is of course the strategic importance of depsang comes or subsector north comes because of the karakoram pass 
and the region, the DBO airstrip, which is the only strategic airstrip we have in that we have in that area, and its proximity to the DSDBO road. So the DSDBO road is barely five to six kilometers from the point where the Chinese are stopping Indian patrols in Depsan, which is which is not which is not much of a distance. But then there's a larger significance, and the larger significance of Depsan planes is if the Chinese increase further, or if the Chinese mechanized offensive succeeds, they could actually cross over from Sasoma to Saserla and then reach the base camp of Siachen Glacier and cut off the logistics supply lines to Central Glacier as well as the Northern Glacier, allowing Pakistan to then do something, play some funny tricks or launch an offensive and put the Indian forces under pressure. The Southern Glacier still has alternative routes available to the Indian Army through which it can be supplied. But the northern and the central glacier can be cut off. So this is the only area actually in the whole of the Indian strategic picture where China and Pakistan can physically collude. They can phys- the collusion can be actually physical more than more, more than strategic. So to be to be clear, I'm not saying that the Chinese are going to reach the base camp and then they're going to climb the Siachen and take out, take uh, and and take Siachen away. What we are saying is that they can reach the base camp cut off the supply lines to the northern glacier and to the central glacier allowing the pakistanis to launch an uh, launch an offensive which would be far more potent and with a greater advantage over the indian de- over the indian deployments this is essentially the significance of of depsang planes as far as what the situation in depsang is based on some of the reportage which i uh, which, which which has come out in the in the in the media and based on i know who gave that briefing which is a very senior military official who gave that briefing uh, there is a surveillance detachment of the chinese at a point at a place called bottleneck or y junction which is around 18 kilometers uh, inside the LAC on the Indian side of the LAC, uh, which is believed to be a couple of vehicles that the Chinese have there. So as soon as Indian patrols try to cross this point, and the bottleneck is actually a physical bottleneck, it's a rocky outcrop through which there is a, a vehicles cannot pass. You have to cross this on foot. Uh, it's, it goes east to west. Uh, and when the Indian patrols reach there, these two surveillance vehicles, these couple of surveillance vehicles, actually signal or call more India, more Chinese troops from the Chinese side, which then come and stop the Indian patrols. And India does not want to create another scene in the area, and therefore Indian patrols have not been going up to five patrolling points in the area, which are PP10, which lies on Raki Nala, PP11, PP11A, PP12, and PP13. PP13 lies on Chivan Nala. Now this bottleneck is the same area, same place where the Chinese had come into. 2013, uh, if you remember. And in 2013, the then army commander is on record that the Indian army actually went into Chumar very quickly, did a quid pro quo, and that forced the Chinese to get out of Tepsang within within three weeks. Three weeks. But currently, the Chinese are stopping Indian patrols in in Tepsang, and Tepsang being a, a strategically very important uh, vulnerable area for India, it remains uh, it remains a huge huge concern huge concern for India. And as some of the reporting in the Hindu has shown, this is an area where almost 900 square kilometer of territory India is enabled on 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 the Indian side of the LAC. Uh, Indian forces are unable to access or Indian patrols are unable to access. Uh, so we believe more than a thousand square kilometers is the area which the Indians are unable to access uh, in the last five months. 900 square, square kilometers out of that area falls in Depsang, Trig Heights, uh, DPO planes. And are we 
discussing dipsang with the chinese in these various meetings which are happening because that is also a little unclear from the news reporting uh, so there are uh, there is a view that dipsang has not been discussed at the core commander level meeting because we we see dipsang as a as a crisis separate from the uh, from the crisis at other friction points because it is a history and i said chinese had come in 2013 in 2015 september they had in fact crossed bottleneck and uh, gone another four and a half kilometers to the uh, to the to the west reaching very close to a town of birtse to the to the place where they believe they their claim line lies the chinese claim line lies so india says it has been a historical problem in dipsang and since april before well before the crisis erupted in may the chinese were stopping us at at at, at bottleneck and therefore uh, we are not discussing at the core commander level meeting but then i don't understand that even the crisis in pangong so the north bank has been has preceded the crisis in may it has been a historical flashpoint it has been something which has been disputed by both the sides and since last october indian patrols have not been allowed to uh, reach their uh, uh, their patrolling points in uh, in pangong so how is pangong different from dipsang uh, is uh, is clearly not understood by me but this is also true that a major general level meeting uh, over dipsang did take place in early august uh, where i am told that the pla refused to concede any ground whatsoever uh, if i remember correctly the meeting took place on 8th of august and the pla refused to concede any ground make any concessions and the situation in dipsang plains remains as it is for last 4 months or so and you know in your response to the previous question you were talking about the possibility of uh, you know a chinese and pakistani kind of military nexus in in a hypothetical scenario of course i'm not saying that that's necessarily the case but but is that something the indians are already worried about the chief of defense staff general rawat is on the record as saying that you know any misadventure by pakistan at this point of time will you know whatever will will invite retribution by india and so on and we know that you know the indian armed forces have been tasked with preparing for a two front war for a little over a decade now so i was just wondering a is this a situation that the indians are concerned about and secondly whether you think given all the current deployments we are actually in a position to meet any eventuality if the if an escalation occurs along the lac and pakistan decides to kind of jump into the fray as it were so the uh, so are the indians concerned about it yes definitely indians are concerned about it because that's the reason general rawat made that very bold bold and very strong statement and that fits in with the whole idea that we will use the strategy of deterrence against pakistan and dissuasion against china so by threatening to you know bomb pakistan out of shape or or you know or uh, to put it more more correctly to uh to promise or, or say that we will bring strong retaliation on you or we, and we will uh and therefore the china the pakistani army may be uh, may be deterred from actually undertaking any misadventure uh, against india general rawat statement very clearly indicated that that strategy uh, that strategy was at uh, was at play uh but to be fair as as at the moment the disposition of the pakistani force pakistani army on the line of actual control as is the case with the disposition of the chinese forces on the on the line of actual control uh, does not actually mean that an offensive is imminent within a day or two or a week it takes certain times for force, for troops to be mobilized and to be disposed in a manner for stocks to be built up for reserves to be built up 
that process has still not taken uh, has not uh, has not happened on the pakistani side and this is what the you know, senior army officials who are briefed journalists have spoken of they say while we understand that that threat remains but we have seen nothing on the ground so far to suggest that the that the pakistan army is mobilizing at this point in time to ensure to, uh, to take advantage of the of the situation with china just to reiterate uh, uh, general nc vij former former army chief has always said and he's put it in writing in a document for uh, vif that if china and india go to war pakistan will definitely enter that situation because it gives pakistan a huge advantage as india will have to move at least half of its forces away from pakistan and india will not have the ability to switch its switch its forces between the uh, between the two between the two borders and let us also not forget that pakistan and china are very close allies in fact uh, there is no way if china decides to put pressure on india that pakistan army would not play their uh, play their part in in in, in such a in such a in such a scenario but that is not to say that the that the two front threat or a two front challenge is imminent either today or tomorrow but that is a situation which remains live that is a situation which indian army indian armed forces indian government indian defense establishment indian national security establishment has always been tasked to be prepared for but when that situation actually happens it would still put the indian armed forces and the indian establishment and the indian government under tremendous pressure for various reasons and even if there is not as you are saying you know and it a uh, a uh, clear prospect so to speak of a two front threat what is quite clear is that the pakistanis have definitely stepped up activity along the line of control secondly they are now going ahead with formalization of gilgit baltistan's political status within the state of pakistan which is something uh, you know which i suppose is also a bit of a tit for tat response to what india did with the jammu and kashmir by amending article 370 uh but clearly the timing is dictated by the fact that the indians perhaps are you know quite tied down on the line of actual control on the other side of jnk to be able to really even threaten something credibly so in that sense there is a two front situation even if it's not military in some ways yeah that's true the two front situation remains alive the, the line of control is it uh, is at its hottest ever or the most active since the time ceasefire happened on 11 september 2003 it has been 17 years and we have never had the uh, the line line of control being so hot so you get reports that both the sides are using uh, heaviest possible weaponry that they can use which is the artillery guns and mortars uh, civilians are dying on dying on uh, dying at least on the pakistani side there are reports of civilians dying uh, we see regular reports of indian soldiers being killed in firing and this is something which is reminiscent of people like uh, many of us who served on the line of control pre 2003 this is almost reminiscent of that this is the situation is uh, is is pretty tough on the line of control between uh, between between india and pakistan and as you said the pakistani army and the pakistani government are taking all these steps vis-a-vis -vis gilgit baltistan or other parts of pakistan because they know that the indian establishment at this at this point in time is focusing on china is completely busy with dealing with the threat on the line of line of actual control vis-a-vis -vis china and does not have the capacity uh, to spare to to take on to take on pakistan at 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 this time but i must reiterate uh, reiterate shinaki even if a military two front military threat does not like look imminent that cannot be ruled out 
you know, because these threats can develop in double quick time. As we know, the whole Indian strategy or proactive strategy, which was devised after, after Operation Parakram, was clearly meant to challenge the fact that Pakistanis can mobilize very quickly. And particularly in the in the regions of Siachen and in the areas of line of uh, in the areas of line of control in Jammu and Kashmir, those mobilizations are even faster than in some and than than in some some other area. And India's advantage of having three very heavy, uh, mechanized heavy strike corps doesn't really hold good in in those in those areas uh, where where it is more infantry dominated battles that are fought. So where do we go from here? Um, I mean. Is the situation going to be more of the same, which is deployment through the winter, perhaps, you know, into early next year by both the Indian Army and the PLA? Or do you see that there is any prospect at all of perhaps, you know, uh, a, a another kind of a political breakthrough, which might allow both sides to at least disengage, if not de-escalate as the winter sets in? I think the fact is that the Indian Army is very clearly signaled that it is ready for for a for a for a long haul, uh, which is essentially a winter deployment on the line of act on the on the line of actual control. As as I see it, it is essentially to signal its determination to uh, to stay there, come what may, and force the Chinese to rethink whether they want to remain deployed on their side of the line of actual control in in such harsh weather. And the second reason is very clearly the Indian Army uh, does not want the Chinese to ingress any further if they were to remove their deployment or reduce their deployment on the line of actual control there's always a fear that the chinese may ingress even deeper even further so it's essentially a kind of holding the line and also sending us sending a signal signal to the chinese that we are willing to risk this take this uh, punishment of a, of a harsh winter are you willing to take that punishment and then maybe that forces a rethink on the chinese side but that having said i think the problem is well beyond the military it is not up to the Indian Army or the PLA to solve the problem. The problem can only be resolved at the political level. And I believe after we have what we have seen with the talks at the level of the defense minister, the special representatives of the of the two government, as well as the foreign minister, it perhaps is now upon the highest political leadership, that is President Xi and Prime Minister Modi, to actually come into play and probably force a breakthrough. Without that, I do not foresee an early solution. I see a very rough winter for both the Indian Army as well as the PLA uh, in in Ladakh, which will take a heavy toll uh, on on both the sides. And with both the soldiers, soldiers on both sides deployed against each other in thousands, you know, any accident can happen very quickly, and things can go out of hand. Yeah, and talking of accidents, you know, the one thing which perhaps we should not talk about is that the rules of engagement seem to have shifted along the line of action control. Previously, there used to be pretty tight regulations on, you know, not using firearms, etc. But now we are seeing reports saying hundreds of rounds have been fired in the air. I mean, I don't even know what to make of such reports and what they may actually sort of translate it by way of accidents and so on. Although I understand that this, these are defined as rules of engagement, uh, the rules of engagement always allowed uh, troops to fire and fire if they were in a threat, uh, if they were threatened, if they were in a situation which required opening of opening of firearms. But clearly, a certain amount, certain norms had been established uh, over over a period of time where nobody wanted to use firearms. Those norms no longer exist after June fifteenth. Uh, where when when the when the incident unfortunate incident happened where twenty Indian soldiers lost their lost lost their lives after that as we know you know at least on four in four different incidents uh, four different periods uh, both the sides have 
opened fire and Indian side has opened at least uh, a firing in the air 100 to 200 rounds, essentially to ensure that the uh, what the Indian, Indian Army claims that the PLA troops do not come close and do not uh, again indulge in some kind of you know, physical violence using clubs, using batons and using barbed, barbed wire uh, laden clubs, etc. and hurt the Indian side. So to keep the PLA at bay, uh, they have opened fire in the air. Although, Srinath, I'm surprised the army's uh, soldiers do not open fire in the air. They open fire for effect. Even when quelling uh, a civilian mob, uh, a civilian mob and aid to civil authority, we were always taught that you open, you never open fire in the air. You, you only, you only fire, fire to kill or fire to to, to hurt someone. Yeah, which is precisely why I'm surprised that, you know, the rules of engagement have shifted in the upward directions. There are new elements in play now and then that might well have other kinds of consequences which are perhaps not exactly calculable at this particular point of time. Yeah, Srinath, I think about this firing in the air, I think this is part of a larger pattern where you, whether you see it in Depsang, whether you see it with, you know, rounds being opened in air. The whole thing is about we do, somehow the Indian side is still very hesitant and does not want to provoke the Chinese. It somehow still wants to just holding itself back in in many ways so that uh, things do not, things are not forced, events are not forced and things do not go out of hand. This is what I see more, more as uh, than, than, any, than, than anything else. Yeah, no, I, I'd agree with you. And then, you know, you, you are a former sort of soldier and uh, I, I think most soldiers agree that, you know, these are situations where restraint is not a bad thing. Yeah. And actually keeping these situations under control is much more difficult than what we might expect from the outside. So, Let's say that yeah, it is a difficult situation, but but uh, let's hope that things do not get out of control, and there is, as you were saying, some kind of a political resolution, perhaps, uh, which will ease things out before the winter sets in. So, Shant, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been great to chat with you. Thank you so much, Rina. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Interpreting India. Stay safe and don't forget to wash your hands. For more information about the podcast and the production team, you can follow us on social media and visit our webpage. 